We've been looking at uh, stories of grace and just uh, kind, of, kind of exploring the initial ideas of it, like, okay, how do you tell stories of grace and some of the challenges that go into thinking about grace in your life and uh, the voices that you hear, um, uh, even your own internal voices telling you this isn't grace uh, in a variety of ways. We've looked at, the, the, in a sense, the different types of grace, the, the, the grace that everyone receives, in a sense, common grace and the different ways that that works. And we've looked at special grace and how God does reveal himself to us. Uh, this morning, I want to look at, um, uh, again, in this area of just kind of trying to form our stories and think about how, what God is doing in our lives, just the fact that, obviously, in suffering, we often don't see grace, right? It's often hard to see grace in the midst of suffering. Someone once said, suffering is not getting what you do want or getting what you do not want, Right? There's, and in that sense, suffering happens all the time to all of us, right? Because we either get what we don't want or we, get, or we don't get what we do want in a variety of ways almost every day. And yet, there are obviously different types of suffering. You have just the growing pains of life, just learning how different things work. You have um, the, the, the difficulties at work and just the challenges of, of trying to accomplish something. We have kind of, of mental health issues and just in how, do we, how do you deal with, um, it's, not just, it's not just the emotions of, uh, of a situation because that's good to respond emotionally to things, but it's, it's the, uh, the how do you deal with the, the emotions if you don't want them to keep going on and on and on. I was, I was thinking back over the various suffering points in my life, and uh, I was re- reminded uh, this morning that I'm glad I'm not at a certain stage. Some of you are, 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 are at this stage right now. It's, it's the stage when your kids start to learn to write, and they choose then to write on anything, right? Like, uh, we, we were, I still remember coming out one morning, and, or one afternoon sometime, and uh, there was literally, it said, no writing on the wall. You know, like, written on our wall, no writing, right? Because one of our children had decided, everyone else in the family should realize that this is not a space for writing on, and so I will write no writing on it by writing on it, you know, and, uh, and it, it felt like at that, that stage of life, it felt like you had to be on every minute of every day, right, as long as the kids were awake, because they could do anything at any time, and you couldn't predict what was going to happen, and frankly, I'm glad to not be on like that all the time, do you know what I mean? Like, now I can, like, sit back in my house and not wonder if someone writing on my walls, right? I have other suffering, other, other tensions in my life, but not that one, you know. I'm glad it's over, that side of it. And yet, at the same time, we, we live in a world that tries to get rid of all suffering. So to push, to push back the, the issues of suffering and the, the tensions of suffering and the, the pains of suffering as much as possible Ajith Fernando, is a Christian leader in Sri Lanka, says this, The church in each culture has its own special challenges, theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. I think one of the most serious blind, theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective under, understanding of suffering. 
There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy from suffering, but there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. He goes on, the good life, comfort, convenience, and a painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. If they do not have these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth. For God intends us to go through trials. God intends us to go through trials. James chapter 1 puts it very succinctly, right? Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, right? And of course, it's not like we choose trials. It's not like we want trials. But God intends to use trials for our good. And if we only view suffering, and if we only view trials as something to get rid of as fast as possible, we miss out on what God wants us to do and how God wants us to see our, ourselves and him in the process. We put a lot of energy, a lot of energy, energy into not suffering, right? We, we, we look at self-help books. We look at, at skills. We look at abilities. Even in some ways, our own personalities are, are about, in some ways, again, how do we avoid suffering, you know? If you're an introvert, in some ways, you're like, hey, going to a big, loud party with a lot of people that's really chaotic, that sounds like suffering to me. I don't need to go to that, right? Um, the extrovert, on the other hand, thinks, you know what, living alone with my own thoughts and never interacting with anyone else, that sounds like suffering to me, right? And, and so we, we choose our activities, we choose our patterns of life in some ways, again, just in some ways, about how do we avoid suffering. And yet, is that the best way of viewing our lives? In, uh, most of you know the story of Joni Erickson Tata, who as a teenager dove into a lake, broke her neck, and was paralyzed from the neck down. In her book, A Place of Healing, she reflects on how we tend to worry about cares, troubles, and afflictions of life and how they're going to wear us down, dull our joy, dilute our hope. In fact, she writes, it may be the very opposite. It isn't the hurts, blows, and bruises that rob us of the freshness of Christ's beauty in our lives. More likely, it is careless ease, empty pride, earthly preoccupations, and too much prosperity that will put layers of dirty film over our souls. She uses this point. She says, I'll never forget years ago when I visited Notre Dame, the Notre Dame Cathedral while I was in Paris. There it was, almost a thousand years old. After years of soot, dust, and grime, they had, you know, the walls were covered with all of that grime. It was even difficult to make out the beautiful carvings and details on the exterior. And so they decided to sandblast the, the cathedral. They, they literally came in and sandblasted the, the rock and the stone in order to drive away the dirt and the grime and reveal the beauty once again. She says, in some ways, that is what God does with us in suffering. He's, in a sense, sandblasting that dirt and grime so we can see, again, the, the beauty of what God has done, the beauty in our own lives, and, and to get us back there. And when I read this story, I thought to myself, yeah, but they did that, but then a few years later, the whole thing burned to the ground, right? You, you know that, right? Like, Notre Dame is, like, it's done. And they're just starting to rebuild it, and it's going to take a while and, uh, and I, I looked up a, a, you know, a news clip on it, and they're, they're trying to, to recreate it exactly. You know what I mean? They're using 
timbers from, from France and hand carving the timbers to, to make it look exactly like it was before, to kind of restore its former beauty and its former glory. And just, just a side note here, next week we're going to start looking at Revelation and kind of God's capstone of Revelation in the book of Revelation. And, and God makes all things new, but God, we tend to be like, oh, I've got to take it back to what it was before, that, to restore the former glory, to bring it back to what it was. But God is, is usually in the process of bringing something new into the picture, even as he restores things to what they were. And, and sometimes in our lives, right, it, it doesn't feel like God is sandblasting it and bringing something beautiful out that I already knew was here, I just couldn't get it out before. And God uses some little suffering in my life to bring something out that, that I knew was there, that I knew I could do, but I couldn't do until he did something in my life. But a, the older you go, the, the longer you live in life, you, you realize that sometimes it feels more like suffering is just burning the whole thing to the ground. <laughs> like like there's, there's nothing left. Like the, the dreams you had and the things you thought that were beautiful and the things you thought that could be, could, could be drawn out are no longer there in a sense. And yet, at the same time, God is doing something more a lot of times in our suffering than we realize. Author and columnist David Brooks noted that profound suffering can often lead to a sense of calling and purpose. He says, people who have suffered almost always have this sense of calling. When people lose a child, they don't say, well, I had two years where I had low pleasure. I should compensate by going to a lot of parties so I can get high pleasure and kind of balance my life out again. They do not say that. They want to turn the suffering into holiness. So they create a foundation or they transform their lives. People don't heal from suffering. They come out changed. Leon Bloy, a French writer, said this, man has places in his heart which do not yet exist, and into them enter suffering in order that they may have existence. Suffering can bend and break us, but it can also break us open to become the persons God intended us to be. It depends on what we do with the pain. If we offer it back to God, he will, do it, he will use it to do great things in and through us because suffering is fertile. It can grow new life. It's a great phrase. Suffering is fertile. It can grow new life. But at the same time, none of us would wish suffering on ourselves, right? If you've been through suffering, you would say, I would, wouldn't want to wish this on my worst enemy, in a sense, right? And yet, as we look here at John 11, we're going to see God using suffering in a certain way and, and helping the, not just Martha and Mary, but his disciples to get a new perspective on what is going on in our lives, even in suffering. So follow along, if you will, John chapter 11, John chapter 11, and uh, the first thing I want you to notice here is that he delays to show his glory. He delays to show his glory. John chapter 11 and verse 1 says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the, so the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that, he was not, that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And what's interesting here is that you have a couple of things going on. The sisters send to Jesus to let him know, hey, Lazarus is ill. And obviously it's not like a cold, okay? <laughs> it's a serious illness. They're worried about him. And Jesus, it says, delays his, he doesn't, leave. And it, and it says really clearly right in the middle of that, he says, now Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He delays out of love. And, 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 and then a couple of days later, he talks to the disciples, hey, hey, well, let's go to Judea. And again, we don't, what, what's interesting here is it doesn't move the story along and go right to, okay, let's go. And oh, then oh, let's deal with the fact that Lazarus is actually dead. The disciples are like, hey, Jesus, wait a second, you know, uh, we're trying to avoid pain. And, and you'll see in some ways all through this chapter that people are trying to avoid pain. <laughs> and, and they're trying to avoid because they're like, hey, you, we go to Judea, everyone's against us there, they're looking to stone you. Like, this, is, this, is, you know, this isn't good, you know. There's a lot of people against you in Judea. You're popular up here. Let's just keep it, let's not rock the boat too much in a sense. And Jesus is like, well, I need to go and see Lazarus because he's asleep. And they're like, well, if he's sleeping, then he's going to get better anyway, so what's the big deal? And he's like, no, he's dead, right? And he clarifies it. And then what does he say? And for your, your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. He, so God is doing something more to show his greatness, his glory in what is happening. And God often delays, right, <laughs> With us as well, the, the, the things that we think need solved immediately, he tends to delay. He tends to be like, okay, yes, I, I'm going to answer that, but not just yet. Do you have some of those things that you're praying about or asking God about in your life? Delays where you're like, well, God, I know you could solve this. Why don't you? you know? I mean, this would be easy for you, God. I mean, just, just to solve the problem. And he doesn't solve the problem, right? We, we live in a culture where delayed gratification is viewed as, at best, a necessary evil rather than a good. God, Jesus here, views his delay as a good thing because there's more to life than just getting what we want out of life. And I realize in our culture that that is not a popular sentiment, <laughs> Because if you only live once 
and you, you can only you know, enjoy what you have, then delayed gratification is at best a necessary evil to get something better by delaying. And yet, Jesus here is saying, I'm going to delay for the purpose of doing something better than what you could imagine. Just think about this question just in relation to that, that point. Is what if you got what you wanted, but it destroyed you, right? What if you got what you wanted, but it destroyed you? A lot of times, right? James chapter 4 talks about this. He's like, you're like, you're, you're, you're at war, your desires are at war within you, and you ask and don't receive. Why? Because you ask that you're just going to spend it on your pleasures because God knows that it's just going to destroy you if you get what you want right now. And, and at the same time, we're left, but, but I still, what I want is a good thing, right? Like Lazarus being healed is a good thing, and it is. You know, spoiler alert, he does get healed <laughs> just after he dies. And, but so you have to ask yourself the question, if God is doing things that, uh, that don't get answered immediately in my life, that there's delays in my life, what is God doing? And here, it's clear, it's not always clear what God is doing, but one of the reasons why he delays is to show his glory so that you can see him at work. Notice then, we go on and we see that he delivers he delivers to focus us on him. And I'm going to come back and, and look through this a little bit more, but I just want you to see that he delivers to focus us on him. Notice verse, uh, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he went and met him. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, "Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you." you know, just to, again a side comment here, right? Here's here's her attempt at mitigating her pain or pushing off her suffering, right? Like, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, right? Like, God, Jesus, you could have, saw, you could have healed him. Like, they're focused on how they could have gotten rid of their suffering because they're suffering, and there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus doesn't condemn them for that. This isn't a matter of, like, they're sinning here by doing it. This is just a matter of perspective. It's, it's trying to help you to see that there's more going on than you realize, even as you're trying to push back your pain. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever believes and dies and lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but it was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, same, same sentence. And of course, it's fresh. It's like, Jesus, we know you could have healed him. We know you could have healed him. They have faith in Jesus, but they, they want Jesus to answer on their terms and not his. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, moved, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the practical one, of course, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That's dramatic scenes, right? Two sisters coming up, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus is saying, you know, resurrection is coming. But they're in the midst of their sorrow, and that's okay. It's just, they're in the midst of their sorrow, and they're saying, yes, but, yes, but, right? And it's amazing here that Jesus comes and he, he weeps about that. But I, but I want you to notice just for a second here what, what you don't get. Like, if I was writing this, you know, as a, as a movie script, you know, or something like that, right? I would be telling the story, Lazarus come forth, he comes out, and I would pan, right, to all the people's jaws dropped, you know, their stunned looks of faces, and, the, and then I would pan back over, and the joy that starts to arise, you know, and oh, this is amazing, and it, it would focus on people's responses to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, but the story doesn't do that at all, you know, it's just like, unbind him, let him go. And then we move on to the next paragraph, which isn't at all about the current scene that we're in. Which I think is telling, if you will. I think partially what's happening here is in the midst of suffering, is in the midst of what's going on, he delivers, but he delivers for the point of focusing their attention not on their responses to the to the miracle, which would be, I mean, you sh I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure in the scene there was a lot of joy. I'm sure in the scene there was a lot of wonder. But the focus is more on Jesus and what he did and who he is. Because sometimes in suffering, we're not focused on God as a person. In in his book, River Out of Eden, Richard Dawkins recalls 
a bus crash in England that claimed the lives of several children. A newspaper interviewed a priest asking, why would God allow suffering like this? The priest replied, the simple answer is we do not know why there should be a God who let these awful things happen. But the horror of the crash to a Christian confirms the fact that we live in a world of real values, positive and negative. If the universe was just electrons, there would be no problem of evil or suffering. So he's basically saying, hey, for Christians, this is a real problem that needs to be solved. But if you talk to an atheist, it's not really a problem that needs to be solved. Dawkins goes on to scoff at this. He writes, on the contrary, if the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. He's basically saying, look, suffering, if you look at it kind of at a macro level, look the principle involved in it. There is no principle. It's all just blind indifference. No one cares. No one's concerned. You either get lucky or you don't. There's no sense of justice. But is that really the answer? Because here in John 11, John focuses us on Jesus. He knows what the answer is. In suffering. It's not that we get our deliverance, it's that we get a, our deliverance from a person that someone actually cares. Peter J. Kreeft put it this way, the answer to suffering cannot just be an abstract idea, because this isn't an abstract is- issue. It's a personal issue. And if you've suffered, you know that's exactly true, right? Suffering is personal, especially if you try to share your suffering with someone else who doesn't care about you very much, who doesn't know you very well, right? They're like, oh, yeah, you're suffering? Oh, yeah, well, let me tell you my suffering. And they're like, like, let's swap stories of suffering. Like, you're not, you're, there's, no, there's no personal care there. But suffering is very personal. Proverbs puts it very well. The heart knows its own sorrows and joys. What is suffering for one is not necessarily suffering for another. But that does not mean that it is not suffering. He goes on, it requires a personal response. It's not just a bunch of words, it's the word. It's not a tightly woven philosophical argument. It's a person, the person. The answer must be someone, not just something, because the issue involves someone, you, and ultimately God. And in suffering, this is just a a key point, It's, it's this... If it's personal to you, you want someone personally to step in and and be a part of the solution, to to, to care about it. It's not just like, I got lucky, (laughs) you know. I got in a car crash, but I got lucky. I didn't get permanently killed, and I had insurance, and, you know, everything's covered, and I can restore things to the way that, back to the way they were. No, we, ultimately, we want someone to come into our lives and step in and say, I care about this. I'm concerned about this. I'm invested in this. And that's really the point through this, this whole story so far is it's, it's summed up in the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. He is with us in our sorrow. 
One of the things that God is teaching us about in, in suffering is that he is with us. He doesn't leave us. He's not like, oh, I'm only with you when you're happy. <laughs> I'm only with you in good times. I'm only with you when you can see what I'm doing. He's with us in our sorrow. Jesus is like, where is he? He, he sees the sorrow of the, of the sisters. He sees the sorrow of the community. And he's, he sees the death that's there. And he doesn't, he doesn't come, in this particular instance at least, he doesn't come from afar and just be like, okay, yeah, we're going to heal. No, he comes into the situation. And in suffering, there's things we need even though we don't always realize it. And it's also one of the hardest things to see is that God is with us in our sorrow. Detroit sports writer Mitch Album heard that his favorite college professor, whom he hadn't seen in 20 years, was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease. Because he lived close, he started meeting with him weekly. And he wrote a book about it called Tuesdays with Maury. During one of their conversations, Mitch asked Maury why he bothered following the news since he wouldn't be around to see things how they would turn out anyway. In response, Maury offered a brilliant insight. He says, it's hard to explain, Mitch. Now that I'm suffering, I feel closer to people who suffer than I ever did before. The other night on TV, I saw people in Bosnia running across the street, getting fired on, killed, innocent victims, and I just started to cry. I feel their anguish as if it were my own. I don't know any of those people, but how can I put this? I'm almost drawn to them. If you've been through suffering, you know what suffering does, and you have compassion, you have empathy on those who have suffered. And Jesus enters into our suffering as well. In fact, the greatest picture of suffering is Jesus going to the cross for us right? We believe in a God who suffers on our, on our behalf. And I want you to see this because really, again, it's not like Lazarus, Lazarus rose from the grave. That's the end of the story, at least not for John. And this is kind of under the idea that he ultimately takes our enemies as his own. Just notice, notice what happens here. Mark chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let it go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was pre high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What's fascinating here is, you remember the beginning of the story, right? The disciples are like, hey, if we go down there, people don't like you. This, this won't be pleasant. And Jesus goes down there. But the end of the story is, 
that his going down there precipitates his death, right? They're like, we can't let this go on any longer. (laughs) This guy is going to win everybody over. And Caiaphas is like, let one man die for the nation. Because they're like, hey, if this starts a civil war, then, then it, you know, the Rome's going to take our way. Our place, we're not, we're, no, everyone's going to lose, but mostly we're going to lose. And yet, Jesus, Jesus is doing something here. You know, what, what Mary and Martha feared was Lazarus' death. What the disciples feared was the pain and suffering of unpopularity and threats and even death. And Jesus is like, I know the enemies you fear, and I'm not going to just keep you away from those enemies. I'm going to conquer those enemies by entering into your suffering and suffering in your place. And that's sometimes what we miss in suffering. We're just like, hey, I want to get rid of the suffering, and I want to get rid of the problems, and I want to get rid of the pain. And again, it's not like we're pain lovers here. If you can, do it. But sometimes God is doing something more. And if we miss it, we miss seeing him. We miss seeing that he's doing something more than we can ask or imagine. You know, they, just wanted him to, they just wanted him to heal Lazarus. But Jesus wanted to conquer their fear of death. The disciples wanted to not go through unpopularity. And he's like, no, <laughs> let me conquer your fear of man. So that Peter could stand up on the day of Pentecost and say, men and brethren, you, you killed Jesus, but God did it for a reason. There's a, there's a hymn we like to sing, right? It's an old hymn. It's on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Jesus took the symbol of the cross and made it a symbol of his suffering on our behalf because, as it says at the beginning of the story, he loves us. He doesn't let suffering in with no purpose because he's just weak or he's uncareful or he's unloving. He wants to conquer our worst enemies, the ones that we think can never be conquered the ones that we think can never move. They're just a part of life, and he wants to conquer those enemies. The song goes on, So I'll cherish the old rugged cross, till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Jesus wants you to know him. He wants you to see what he can do and give glory to him. But most of all, he wants you to see that he is with you. That's why he came as Emmanuel, God with us. So how do we find grace in the midst of suffering? Just three practical ideas, okay? Three practical ideas. First of all, persevere in the delays. 
persevere in the delays because God is forming hope in the midst of challenges. Persevere in the delays when God doesn't answer right away, when he doesn't do exactly what you think he should be doing right now, persevere. Romans 5 talks about it, right? It says that, that our faith produces perseverance. Perseverance produces hope. Hope, uh, character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love in us, in our hearts, right? It goes on to say, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? While we were still sinners, God loved us. And if that's true, how much more does he love us once he's received us to himself? So persevere in the delays, persevere in the questions, persevere in the, in the hardship. Why? Because God is going to help you to see hope. You know what? I laugh about having a kid writing no writing on the walls. You know why I can laugh about that now? <laughs> Which I couldn't do it in the moment. <laughs> I wasn't laughing, let me tell you. Um, I can laugh about it now because I see what God did in the delays. Taught me to love my kids and be patient with them when I didn't feel like being patient. Taught me to realize that there's more to life than not having writing on the walls. <laughs> taught me to realize that, that God is with us so that now when my kids face different challenges, I'm like, you know what? God's still here. I still have hope. Persevere in the delays. The second thing to do is to seek his presence. If God is present, if one of the things he wants to do in suffering is to help us to see his presence with us, to see more of who he is, because all they thought of Jesus was, Jesus, yeah, you're, you're probably the Messiah, and yeah, you can heal some people. They didn't realize he wanted to conquer death, that the way he was going to conquer death was by him dying in their place. They needed to see more of who he was. And one of the things that happens in the midst of suffering is to see more of who he is. You say, well, how do I do that in the midst of my suffering? Because that's really hard. And it, you know what? It really is. I would point you to the Psalms. Watch the psalmist seek the presence of God. To long for it. To plead for it. To, to, to wrestle with God over it. But seek his presence. Say, God, where are you? I want to see you. I want to know that you're present. I want to know what's going on. I want to know more of who you are in the midst of this. And I would just say, the best advice I have is go to the Psalms and see David and others go and do that over and over and over again. The last thing I would say is wait. Wait to see what God does after he answers, right? Because th this, this, this whole story, the key to this whole story is what God does after he raises Lazarus from the dead, right? He sets himself up to die for everyone to conquer death. And, and in the midst of suffering, we often can't see, literally we cannot see what God is doing. Why? Because it's not in existence yet. God hasn't created it yet, in a sense. And, and we have the chance to just wait to say, okay, God, this suffering is fertile. You're creating something new out of this. I'm going to wait to see what you do after you answer. And 
And the thing that will sustain you in the midst of that is the fact that God cares. He weeps. He's the one weeping alongside of you as you weep. He's the, along, he's the one coming alongside of you and saying, what's next? Where? How is this going to work? And he's, he knows, but he's in, in the midst of that, he's still there. And so, I don't know what suffering you're going through. I, I, I do know that you are suffering. Okay? <laughs> I do know that. Because we're all human beings. We all get up in the morning and things don't go the way we plan. And sometimes that's little and sometimes that's big. But I do know a God who is bigger than all of our suffering. That, can, that is concerned about conquering our enemies that we think can't even, we can dream that they could be conquered. And I know that he wants to be with you. He wants to never leave you or forsake you. He wants to walk with you. So will you do that? Will you walk with him? Will you go to him and plead with him? Will you wait on him? And will you persevere in the midst of whatever you're going through? Because God is the God of all comfort, the God of all hope, and you can rest in that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of all hope, the God of all comfort, that one day you're going to wipe all tears from our eyes, that one day all sorrows will be forgotten and all joys will be full. But Lord, that is not this day. Lord, we have sorrows. We have challenges. We have questions. We have heartaches. And we look to you and we wait on you because you are doing more than we could ask or imagine. And yet at the same time, we want to know that you're with us. We want to know your care. We want, to, we want to know that you weep with us. Lord, we thank you that we can see that especially in the cross. To hear Christ say, Father, why have you forsaken me? And yet say, it is finished. And know that you love us, love us like that. And I pray if there's someone here who hasn't trusted in Christ, who doesn't know the hope of forgiveness, the gift of grace, that's not something they can, they can earn or deserve. They don't have to do a certain number of things or make sure their life turns out a certain way in order to receive grace. That it's a gift from you because you love us and you want us to know you. I pray that they would find that grace today. And for those of us who know that grace, that we would walk in it. We would find that grace even in suffering. Lord, we pray that you would help us to find it in your son's name.